Welcome to The Liberal in the Room. Coming up on today's show, we've got COP28, secret policy under Patel and Swedebrahman, councils going bust, and the latest general election projection from electoral calculus. Let's get in. Okay, so let's start with COP28. We're actually going to go back to COP23 and what happened there a little bit, just a little bit. So COP23, um, there was an effort by some countries to try and get a motion passed, and I have it in the final like conference document, to push for the phasing out fossil fuels. Rather interestingly, only 80 of the 198 countries attending signed up to this, which I think, as we'll paint further along in this talk and this episode, um, it, demos- in de- it demonstrates the lack of willingness for countries to actually take climate action. Um, and there's a lot of other signs of this as we go on. Um Perhaps what's quite interesting, because we've let it go on so long, they've been having these meetings since 1995, okay? That's how long COPPA's been going on for. It's insane. They have been going on for so long, and yet such little action has been taken, really. Emissions have continued to rise. The only thing that's ever been achieved but environmentally wise by countries come together was the ozone layer and that's still got a hole in it um it's the only thing we've ever actually done well or fast not not the case with uh with climate change as a whole um i think we should perhaps get into climate change a bit and then introduce some rather depressing statistics and then i think we can talk about maybe how countries can fix this i'm going to start with a a mildly controversial statement i don't think it should be controversial because it's quite realistic but okay politicians are lying to you which is no surprise um but they are really lying to you with this one 1.5 degrees the 1.5 degree target is dead whenever a politician tells you we're aiming for 1.5 blah 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 they're lying they're not they all know it's dead they all know it challenged on it they'll be like no no no, no. We're, we're going for it we think it's realistic they don't they absolutely don't they think it's a complete nonsense and pretty much they're right. 1.5 degrees is dead. We are not far off it. We're like, we've passed the one degree mark already. If we were, if we were to get 1.5 degrees, the whole planet would have to hit net zero between 2060 and 2070. 
take into context, we're emitting over 40 billion metric tons of CO2 equivalent every year, and it's still rising. I'll caveat that with the fact that we expected that it may peak in 2024. In all likelihood, I reckon it will take 2025, 2026, and it will be plateauing around that time. It depends how we, the economics work out. But in all likelihood, it's not going to peak that early, but we'll see. Um, but 1.5 degrees requires us to get net zero by 2060, 2070. And in order to achieve that, you actually, we actually have to cut it really steeply before that. Halfway there, not even halfway, much closer, in, te- in seven years' time, in 2030, so in eight years' time, really, in 2030, emissions have to be half of what they currently are, which is not going to happen. Quite bluntly, countries are not going to decarbonize that quickly. It will not happen. The rich world is not willing to stump up the cash to give to the developing countries. It's not it's not a realistic concept. Really. We're all too selfish, or the politicians are at least. If and and this is the other bit. This is assuming the 1.5 degrees of warming by 2100. So all, all these warming figures are to 2100. I'll be very old by then. Might still be alive. Let's hope. Um, we have to go, the planet has to go carbon negative at 2075 to hit 1.5 degrees. We have to go carbon negative, not carbon neutral, which we're all talking about, carbon negative. Now, I'll get on to carbon neutral in a net zero or whatever in a minute. Well, we have to go negative. We've got to go net negative. That's a nice phrase, isn't it? But we've got to get carbon negative. The whole planet has to go carbon negative by 2075 by about 2 billion metric tons CO2 equivalent to actually hit 1.5 degrees. And the reason that that's the case is um, if the whole of humanity, for example, the whole of humanity just disappeared right now and all emissions ceased, the planet's temperature would still keep going up. It would hit like 1.8 to 2 degrees because of like the cumulative effects of everything's happening, especially like forest fires and like the Amazon stuff. But the Amazon became a net emitter in like 2016. Or maybe it was 2020. I've seen conflicting sources. Um, but like all these, like the rainforests will not stabilize. The climate will not stabilize for decades. It would, st- it would keep warming if we just stopped. That's why we have to go carbon negative if you want to hit 1.5, because you'll go past that without us doing anything. If you were to hit two degrees, you would need net zero for the whole planet by 2080 to 2090. However, this is why everyone talks about 1.5 degrees and says they're aiming for it and not two degrees because there's a big difference between 1.5 and two degrees. 1.5 
like you should consider the differences on a logarithmic scale. One point five is bad. You get coral bleaching, you get forest fires, rainforest fires, everything. It's all going bad. Two degrees is like. 10 times worse, sort of like that logarithmic scale. Whereas on 1.5, by the end of the century, it's expected that coral reefs would have recovered somewhat. They would have adapted to the higher water temperatures. At two degrees, they would die out. They would be gone. There would be none left. It's too much for them. They would die out. It's not like there'd be small pockets. They would all be dead. The whole marine ecosystem not the whole of it, but the vast majority of it, especially uh, around coastlines, would utterly collapse. Fishing stocks would collapse. We would have, bare, you would have, it, it's hard to overstate how cataclysmic an effect it will have, two degrees, on, the, on marine life, just that, just marine life. It would be cataclysmic. Economically, it will have a massive effect. It will kill your fishing industry in every single country on the planet. Then, you can talk about, let's say, the land, like go rainforests. They will be burning down at an even greater rate. You will have droughts for insane periods. Just that we have had, um, we had El Nino this year in 2023. That sent temperatures shooting up. And it's not, this is not like your limit. The 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees is not the limit of the year. It's just the average. So this has just pushed the average up a little bit this year. But it's like being like, well, it's, this year has been like 1.5. Depending what day it's been, you could have been 3 degrees above average. You could have been 5 degrees above average. Is this the, it's just, these like 1.5 degree targets hide massive discrepancies across the planet. In some places, the average temperature has gone up, gone up by five degrees. In others, it's gone down um, because of the air, the effects in the stratosphere and whatnot um, that it's having, the warming temperatures and how the air currents are changing because of it. Um, but they will also rise eventually. And then everything will be rising, and you just see these massive heat maps that are showing the temperature rising everywhere. That's one. That's two degrees. On current policies that are being committed to now, and this is why I wanted to emphasise that two degrees is cataclysmic. Current policies, depending on what source you're looking at. It's estimated that well, there will be 2.5 to 3.1 degrees centigrade of warming. That is insane. That means in places you would see 10 degrees, 15 degrees warmer on any given day. You will see wildfires in the Arctic, which we had this year or last year. Those things are not actually meant to happen. They're statistically improbable. But they are happening now. They will be a regular occurrence with these sort of things. But that's our politicians for you. On pledges and targets that are not committed to, but they've been like, oh, they've said them at COPs 
COP meetings and what whatnot. Those it's estimated that they would give us two point one to two point six degrees of warming. And that I think that's the bit to highlight that what politicians say they're promising they're promising you one point five. In reality, they are actually pushing for 2.1 to 2.6. They're like pushing for two and a half, basically. Because they don't think it's realistic. They don't want to pay the economic consequences for the mismanagement that they have done to our planet. To our country and Britain, at least. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> I think... Let's, let's take this from a liberal perspective. That's what this podcast is, isn't it? Um, this is very government interventionist. Like, how would we fix this? How would a liberal government fix this? If you, if you put the Liberal Democrats in charge, let's put them as the poster boy of this. So to speak, for lack of a better turn of phrase, for this podcast, for this episode at least, if, if the Liberal Democrats were in charge and they did... If they committed to the liberal policies, what, what would that look like? Or we just had any liberal government in any country. And it's the liberalism ideology, not left-wing socialism of America for context, liberalism. You would see great government intervention. You would see government subsidies on a massive scale to subsidise cleaner energy, electric cars, so forth, decarbonising your logistics that's the issue really we've done a lot of the energy the energy's doing pretty well in britain it's the logistics it's the ships it's the trucks it's the trains we're not going to electrify our railways until like 2300 at the current rate i think it was like a long time basically germany's doing it like five times faster than us we could get into uh, uh, water companies and how they expect our pipes, like roughly on the based on the rate they're replacing our water pipes, they expect the pipes to last uh, like a couple millennia or couple like several centuries, an absurdly long time, which would never be realistic. Um, gives you an idea of the short termism. That, that that illustrates my point. We're not thinking long term. And if the government actually wanted to fix these issues, if you were to take a liberal approach, you need to provide the opportunities and people will take them up. But you have to make it. The government won't like a liberal government would not order you to do something. It would just make it very preferable to do something. It would offer you, say, um, For example, we could illustrate this with the sugar tax, and this works on companies. It also, can work on consumers. Or like, no, let's take the alcohol, alcohol taxes, um, in say the Nordic countries. It's to prevent heavy drinking because it's re it's much more expensive to buy alcohol. So you only take, so you only buy, like you buy less. You're you're still allowed to. Government's not stopping you but it is creating this financial incentive not to. So on a climate level, we could, you could subsidise green energy, green vehicles. The government could 
invest in electrifying the railways, building new railways. They they offer a very strong way of improving our infrastructure that is low carbon. Is you're not emitting huge amounts of CO two and other toxic gases from diesel and other petroleum fuels. That that would that would be my idea of how you'd fix it. It's just massive government intervention. You've got to if you want to do specifics, wind energy, it's a great one. You'll need batteries like solar wind, that's your main ones. Um and you'd focus on getting batteries to store electricity when you can't when those things aren't operating. You might there are look you know, people are looking into lithium batteries, you're looking into sodium batteries, they're looking into hydrogen batteries where you split water and then you uh what's the word? Gosh, I'm losing my mind, aren't I? Anyway, um but you'd like you do hydrogen batteries and then you combust it, there we go, with oxygen again, and that releases energy and it sort of acts as a battery. It's all self self-contains, so to speak. I've not mentioned nuclear because nuclear fusion is an unknown quantity and nuclear fission is a limited resource. We are actually running out of uranium uranium and plutonium, the only two metals that really can be used for it. We're running out of it. I think there's under 300 kilograms of the stuff in reserve to my knowledge. So it's not really sustainable, so to speak. Um, not sustainable fuel source. And we'll just get dependent on it because it's it produces a lot of energy for a long time. But once it's gone, it's gone. And they won't last forever. Whereas in renewables, you will have to replace the plants, of course, but they are going to last forever. Theoretically. Well, billions of years, at least. <laughs> uh, we don't have to think that far. we just got to think in the next century or so. Um, but yeah, that, I think that concludes the climate section of this episode. not looking good is it <laughs> oh yeah time for the supposedly secret policy of pretty patel and swella bravman pretty patel home secretary under boris johnson um retained her job despite a bullying investigation finding that she had bullied staff repeatedly um and Suella Bravman, Home Secretary under Truss, I know you forgot about her, and and then I was Home Secretary under Sunak for a year until she was fired, replaced with James Cleverley, who was replaced by David Cameron. Interesting things. Anyway, the, the how how this story goes. There was a court hearing on Wednesday of this week in which a asylum seeker on um, uh, some lawyers on 
uh, employed by a signer made on behalf of this asylum seeker claimed that Pretty Patel, Swella Brahman, had pursued a policy of obstructing a High Court ruling from November of 2021, which ruled that the victims of trafficking should be given permission to stay while applications were processed benefit, which allows you to allows these asylum seekers to access benefits, work, etc. So they can afford like they, they can find a home, they can get their money, they can pay taxes, so forth. Um, it's known as try and remember the name for this. Discretionary leave. It can be given to you for up to 30 months while your claim is processed. It's done for exceptional circumstances, which the High Court ruled was if you were a victim of trafficking, this was the case. Um, the claimant um, was trafficked in Albania um, under 18 to sell drugs. And if they didn't, their, fa- their family was threatened, so they, they felt they had to. And they escaped this trafficking. They came to the United Kingdom. Um, and it's claimed by them that Priti Patel, Swella Brahman, have obstructed their asylum claim and obstructed their right to have discretionary leave to be able to like have the right to work to benefit so forth um the defense of this is the government's lawyers have said that they the reason this was a ruling was obstructed was that they were they were waiting for the appeals results the result the this ruling by the high court is being appealed in the appeals courts now that I am no expert on the law. That sounds not particularly sound. Like in criminal law, if you're convicted, then you go to jail. Like you go to prison and you start serving your term. And then if you're acquitted later, then you get compensation. Here, the government is sort of skipping the whole going to prison part so to speak and is just doing what they like still they're they're effectively ignoring the court ruling which is no surprise from a government that wants to pass legislation overturning a ruling by the supreme court um we'll get to that another day um but I think it's rather dangerous for a government, for, for, rather dangerous for democracy that a government is ignoring a ruling from the courts when it's obligated to follow that ruling. We will see where this court case goes. It may be back in a year, maybe back in two years, six months, who knows? Um, but we'll see where it goes. What's interesting, though, is that the there are government communications in the that are uh, in this news article which show there was consideration to avoid this policy being leaked 
Um, and this policy, and, it, and and to avoid it being seen or like to avoid it, certain politicians catching wind, specifically Theresa May and Sir Ian Duncan Smith, former leaders of the Conservative Party, Theresa May, former Prime Minister, both have worked on laws against trafficking, human trafficking. And so there's consideration, evidently, that, well, these people don't like human trafficking and we're kind of undoing their legacy. So let's make sure they don't know that we're doing that. That's the idea of what's going on here. So that's certainly interesting and something to look at. Um, but I think what it shows that this policy is perhaps not legal and perhaps they do know that and perhaps they know that what they're doing is wrong. And in any case, they should have just been allowing these people because they're not giving them an asylum claim. They're just allowing them to live a life while their asylum claim is being processed. The, the claimant alleges they've been held up for 18 months. 18 months. So. I think and like that's costing just to take it on a very conservative line of attack. It's costing the taxpayer lots of money. That person's got to be housed. They've got to be fed. They've got they've got to be given health care and so forth. This person, this, this claimant could be out there with a job, with accommodation, paying taxes, contributing to the economy, but they're not because the government's got an ideological bent on this. And so does the Labour Party, quite frankly, because they don't really have the guts to stand up to this sort of thing. But these people are coming from horrific places and we're just not even giving them the basic right to work, to live. I mean, we, we could get into the asylum backlog, um, which has grown, I believe. Has it grown? Yeah, I think that's grown along with waiting lists. I get the two confused. They're basically the same thing. Just a waiting list for something. Help, usually. Yeah. Um, so... I think they, like, it's very much my liberal leaning here. It's like these people should be allowed to work, allowed to pay taxes. There's one argument, which I don't particularly like, but it's very effective. They should be allowed to pay taxes. They should be able to contribute to our country while they're here. Rather than using some ideological zeal to harm our country, all in the name of protecting Britishness. Or more precisely, like the ethnic homogenous of our society that the conservatives so much desire. It's, it's rooted in racism, obviously. Um, but few people call that out. Least of all the Labour Party, who in the last set of PMQs attacked them for not bringing asylum claims down, for not having tougher immigration laws. 
We don't need tougher immigration laws. We actually need people to come to this country because the working population will be shrinking without them. The NHS would be under more strain, not less, without them because we need the money. The only reason the NHS is under strain in the first place is because it's been attacked by austerity for the past... Oh, oh, I say 13 years. The Liberal Democrats did mess up in coalition. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll admit that. <laughs> it did, some good things happened. We'll maybe, go, maybe do an episode on coalition at some point. Um, yeah. But like, the, the, so the NHS is... Oh, it's interesting how we've taken immigration to the NHS. The NHS is underfunded. It's not because of immigration. Immigration, if anything, is helping it. Thousands of nurses, thousands... Hmm, doctors? I think doctors. Hard to say. I mean, we lose all our doctors here to, like, Australia and America, where they get paid much more. We should pay them more. And you'll ask me, where do you get the money? Well... The oil companies, the gas companies, windfall tax, haven't implemented that because of specifically designed loopholes. And then the government goes on all about, like this was Labour's attack line, um, that the government has this policy where foreign workers can be paid less than if you if they come to this country, they can be paid less than the ones in this country. Well, that's not very helpful for anyone. You're not treating foreign workers fairly as you should be. And then British workers are under advantage, are disadvantaged because of that. Because why would you employ someone you have to pay more for when you can get someone who's just as good for less? But it, it, yeah. And the reason they have that is because it benefits their mates. In effect, for the Tories, it benefits their benefits the um like the because it benefits their like business partners partners or like benefits their donors so to speak it's rather interesting if you look into i think it's i believe it's sky news they have all the donors of all the parties they've got this massive graphic it's really interesting dig into it and they've done documentaries on this there's a lot of just companies that have donated to the Tories and to Labour. You try and search these companies up. They basically don't exist. Their headquarters are these empty buildings with no one in them. Or a house. And you knock on the door and then they tell you to go away. Because they don't want you to show them up for corruption. Like that. It's, it's money laundering in effect. Very hard to prove, though. How did we get here? From immigration? Good lord, okay. Um, well, there you go. Apparently, immigration all links back to Tory donors. Which it does, to be honest. It's all ideological. And partly the whole Red Wall idea that everyone in the Red Wall is racist. Which is evidently not true. Um... 
but that's the idea the condescending view of the tories is that they can win elections by appealing to the very small minority of racists in this country and they believe that's not a minority but the majority which is rather condescending of voters but there you go that's the that's immigration that's the immigration section i guess for this episode oof Corruption and Tory donors. I guess most of British politics comes back to this, doesn't it? They're all corrupt. But the finances are weird. And then let's not forget, not all these donations have to be declared if they're under certain value. In fact, don't mind that, ignore that. In fact... Um, very recently, um, government through secondary legislation, which we could also do a whole episode on, um, just basically gives them executive powers to do whatever they want with the law um, in very brief terms. They raised the threshold for declaring. They said in line with inflation, it's like 40%, 50%, 80% in- increase for certain donations, for certain thresholds and so forth that don't have to be declared or how much money you can take and so forth, which is uh, uh, interesting. No corruption there. What do you mean? Um, So there you go. That's tangent. Gosh, tangents, eh? Corruption, British politics. Okay, I'll I'll stop there on that section. But the next bit, there's a little bit more money in the next bit. Uh, Who knows if that's got corruption as well? Let's see. All right, then, um, moving on to, a, I think, hopefully a more brief section of the podcast. Um, Nottingham City Council has effectively declared bankruptcy. Um, Birmingham City Council went a couple months before this, back in September, I believe. Um, and it's becoming a bit of a trend. You're not surprised when you see it in the news anymore. Um I think, okay, let's start with facts. Uh, They ran out of money. They've got a massive hole in their budget that they can't fix. And so they've issued a special order. It's basically bankruptcy and they have to cut a ton of spending. In effect, big austerity measures on steroids. They cut funding for basically everything as an exceedingly crazy rate and then there's other councils in the news um that are approaching it like we'll see, probably see a wave of them in the next few years because they've got holes in their budgets that are growing larger and larger and at a certain point they can't fill that hole with other money which i think promises to be interesting um why is this happening then well, there's two factors that combine to create the perfect storm. First one's austerity. On average, the spending power of councils, local councils, this is your every council, your unitary authority, county council, your district council, um, their spending power has fallen by 27% compared 
to 2010, 2011 in real terms. The spending power started going up in proportion to then, but it's 27% below what it was over a decade ago, which is bad. And the second factor, which is what makes this a perfect storm, councils are expected to deliver more for you now. They've got to do social care. Like COVID has created a whole host of problems. Education, which county councils run, unitary authorities run, they've got to pay for all of that. It's got to come out of their budgets. Special educational needs has gone through the roof. They can't afford it. And they're doing it with less money. They're expected to do more with less. I know the Tories love efficiencies, but it's a little too much. You can do the same with less to a certain point. You can't do more with less. It's kind of a, a math, mathematical error, um, which the Tories don't seem to compute. Or maybe they do and they want this. Maybe they want to destroy the country. Who knows? Maybe they don't really care because they want lower taxes for them and their mates for their donors that's why the donors pay them to get lower taxes to get into the lords to get a life peerage and a long long time that they will get money from that the impact of this is that for the people in these places where the councils have gone bust their public services will collapse. I don't know how the schools will run. And this is the other thing. This 27% is an average. That includes unitary authorities, which have access to business rate tax. So they, they get the money from business rates. The government sets the rate, I believe. But they get the money raised by that, unitary authorities. County councils, district councils don't get any of that. They're worse off. Now, I believe Nottingham City Council was a unitary authority, which is rather interesting. If they've gone bust, then mm, don't want to be anyone else. Um, but that means like your county councils, your district councils are facing enormous pressure. And ultimately, like, what, what, what sort of solution can we offer to this? government grants for the councils kind of need to go like not even grants they just need to fund them they need to give them statutory certain level of money the whole leveling up fund is probably the only reason most of the north hasn't gone bust yet because they're like just like everywhere else but they're not getting the same level of council tax because the money raised from council tax is based on your property value it's not it's probably value in the north is not as high as it is in the south because London makes your property tax much higher. Um, the levying up funds, the whole way it works, it rather enforces elitism, but we could do that another day as well. Ultimately, if you were to fix this, liberalism is all about like taking democracy closest to the people as possible. You c I would advocate give the local councils greater control over tax raising. They should have greater control over council tax. They can only raise it by up to 3% without, actually, yeah, up to 2.99% without a referendum. 
and nobody's going to vote for a referendum to increase their taxes. Um, you might vote for a party, but you're not going to vote for a referendum. And that's an issue. Why we introduce that? Well, it's because councils can go a bit crazy. So maybe we should, I would say raise that, raise that limit to 10%. Or better yet, change the council tax to an income-based tax. So say that they can take a certain rate of your income as an additional tax. Add an, like, another 4% on income tax or whatever. Instead of your paying, you paying council tax in the form of your property, you just pay on your income. And that means it's far better distributed across society to a certain extent. And if you raise the amount they can, if you increase the way that they can change that, much better for them. Give more power to local authorities, people can hold them to account, and it'd be much better. Alas, that probably won't happen. Labour could do it. They have had a history of decentralisation. But we will see secondary legislation and the whole centralisation of Westminster government and Whitehall. Number 10 may have something to say about that, but we can do an episode on that. I'm sure I'm sure I'll do an episode on that at some point. Um, but that might be an issue. So we, we may not see an improvement for councils. Labour would probably offer more funding. That's, that would be the idea, wouldn't it? You vote Labour, you vote for the centre-left party, they give more funding. Will that happen? It's hard to say. They could. You'd hope they would. But I don't know. They don't really want to commit to funding anything, and maybe they'll be a they'll pull a Joe Biden, and they'll actually be quite left wing, which would be great because we can get a load of money spent. Not the solution to all problems, I'm aware, but for councils, yes, they are as efficient as it's ever going to get. They're so efficient, it's becoming inefficient because they are requiring one person to do a lot more work than they used to be able to. And that's at some point, there are studies that show you like once you do too much, you become more inefficient. So there's your issue. I think that's councils. Yeah. That's your liberal commentary on that. To wrap up then, uh, we won't do a quick break there. To wrap up, uh, we'll look at the electoral calculus prediction. Let's be nice and quick. This predicts a Labour majority of 268 seats, which translates into Labour 459, Conservatives 120. That's very low. Historically low, I believe. Liberal Democrats 31, which is pretty good for them. That's a tripling of the seats that they won in the last election, doubling what they hold now. And the SNP on 17, which would mean the SNP's permanent two questions at PMQs go to the Lib Dems, which would be something interesting, raise their profile and so forth. 
S&P appears it'll, they'll collapse in Scotland. They'll go from like 50 seats to 17. But that shows you the volatility of the first-past-the-post system. Small swings, or even large swings, can have outsized effects massively. They win a majority of the vote in Scotland, like 40% of the vote. Majority of the vote, majority of the seats on 40% of the vote. As most of politics works. Anyway, in general elections, the party who wins the most votes tends to win a majority. Labour won 350-something seats in, 20, in 2005 with 36% of the vote. Tories go on to get 310-ish seats in 2010 on like 39. Or maybe it was 33% or 36 or 38. Someone in that range. Above 36, I think. But they didn't get a majority. But Labour did last time. It's very interesting. In many ways, first whilst the post benefits Labour more than it does the Tories, ironically. Um, on a party basis, on a centre-left basis, it doesn't. It penalises the left because you've got many left-wing parties, not very many right-wing parties. Reform may have something to say about that at the next election which would be interesting, but we will see. They're not predicted to get any seats. Greens will get one, among other parties. Reform could take up to three, but they're not predicted to get any. If they were to get a seat in the next election, it would be politically seismic on a symbolic level, but Labour will have a massive stonking majority, and so it won't affect that in any way. But on a symbolic level, it would be quite seismic. And yeah, so there's that issue. But apart from that, it, the election results are looking pretty good. If we could just beat the Tories into third place, that'd be awesome. But apart from that, it's looking good. Labour's getting a very large majority. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that. Um, last time they had a large majority, we went to war multiple times. So let's hope that doesn't happen this time. Um, yeah, I think that wraps up for this week. I'll see you again next week on the Friday. It's not a twice-weekly episode. I've decided that's a bit too much, but yeah, I'll see you Friday next week, evening, or Saturday morning, depending when you're listening to this. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. Thanks for getting to the end, if you're still here. And share this with your friends. Share it around. Um, there'll be, if we get enough listeners, there will be exclusive content in the form of a subscription priced at about one ninety nine, I think, in pounds and dollars. But until then, that might happen only in a couple months' time, depending how soon we can get all those people listening. Help me share subscribe, follow, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening.